the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. With your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, Another Sunday night here in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Tonight in the uh, next two segments, we're going to be talking about something that's been in the news for quite a bit. And that's the uh, issue of the coronavirus, not not related to the beer, but the uh, the virus that's uh, in the news every day, and we're watching it uh, develop as it started in Wuhan, China, uh, about a month ago that we started noticing it. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking to the uh, director of the um, Cuyahoga County Emergency Management Agency, also known as the Office of Emergency Management. Uh, Mr. Mark Christie, and I believe he's calling in right now. Mark, are you there? I'm here. We got you. Yes, very good. Well, thank you for calling in tonight. Uh, We were just starting to talk about the coronavirus and the Cuyahoga County Office of Emergency Management. Uh, And I'm sure that people have heard of emergency management. We call it OEM, used to be EMA. Uh, It's all the same thing, I think. Can you give us a little insight as to what does your office do? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right, EMA and OEM is all the same thing. Um, some some go as a, go by emergency management agencies, others there's are known as the Office of Emergency Management, but they're all the same at the end of the day. And um, what we're focused on at the county level um, is really trying to uh, prepare um, our first responder community, our general population, and our you know other public safety partners uh, for emergencies and, and disasters that can and, and do happen in our area. Um, in times of peace, that means we're doing a lot of planning, uh, facilitating trainings and exercises, uh, things of that nature. And then, um, you know, during emergencies, we sort of shift gears and and we're in a more operational role where we're, uh, you know, either activating our emergency operations center to coordinate resources or performing damage assessments in the field to see if we qualify for any sort of, you know, federal or state assistance following a severe weather incident. Um, so it's sort of an interesting line of work where, you know, one day we can, you know, be doing a lot of office things. The next day, you know, if something bad happens, we're, we're, like I said, doing things in a much more operational way. Well, it's almost like the military where everything is planning and then action, operations. Right. And uh, right. They, they say in the, in the wars in the military that prior to an engagement, prior to a battle, uh, all the activity, all the energy is put into the planning. And then when things start happening for real, the operational phase steps in. The, usually, the first thing that goes out the window is the plan, but everyone sure. has everyone has a pretty good idea of, of what direction we are, we shall be right. going. Uh, yeah, it's, the, it's those conversations that you know in the planning process where I think everybody retains what they you know are expected to do. Um, but but yeah, you, you know you're not necessarily consulting a plan when you're actually responding you know to something. Now, does the um, now what's the proper way of referring to your office now? OEM or EMA? Yeah, we're. We're considered an office of emergency management, but like I said in the beginning, it's it's really the same thing. Um, there's 88 county emergency management agencies, you know, throughout the state of Ohio, and they all go by different uh, variations. Oh, of different that. acronyms there. Yep. 
Oh, my goodness. Well, um, we, we talked at the top of the hour about the question of uh, the coronavirus, the, the, the novel coronavirus, uh, meaning uh, coronavirus has been around for a while. There's a, a number of varieties of it, I suppose. Uh, but this one right. here crossed over to humans. Right. That Yeah, the novel is very literal. It, you know, I mean, just new. Uh, and, but you're correct. The, there's, the coronavirus is a family, you know, a virus is, that has been around. And uh, well, you know, and with that being there, we've been aware of it. So when it was crossing over, looking at the OEM emergency management ideas, uh, I know over the years uh, I, I've known you for a number of years. We've been watching things going back when we had H1N1, SARS came through, various things. I remember I was talking to someone the other day about years ago, back in the 1970s, with the swine flu epidemic, mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing where. Uh, sooner or later, if it is something that is not controlled, uh, is that we have to be planning for it now. And not to scare anyone, but the idea with regard to the coronavirus, we don't know where it's going to be in six months, whether it's under control or whether it's expanding. And right. so so with that, I know we, we've worked with you planning things before. What kind of plans would there be if we have to start uh, opening up uh, points of distribution and inoculating people. Is there a plan sure. for that? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of a lot of the things we're doing right now and, and would be doing if this were to uh, expand our sort of universal to emergency management and public health. Um, so things like pod, you know, pod planning, or um, you know, uh, just other coordination processes. You know, really is a severe, you know, weather incident versus a public health emergency. So you know, what we're focused on and have been focused on over the you know past few weeks is um, coordinating closely with our uh, county public health and then also the city of Cleveland's Department of Public Health and their emergency management agency um, you know essentially setting up um, communications channels uh, you know establishing expectations um, bringing information back and forth across the agencies that are sort of actively monitoring this you know, all in effort to, um, if something, you know, if conditions were to change and this were to expand, we were to get a confirmed case in, in our county or, you know, in the state, uh, we would be forward-leaning and be able to hit the ground running. But, you know, all these kinds of emergency management, like I said, they're, they're really designed to be all hazards. Uh, this is something, you know, as we're sort of in this monitoring posture and, uh, you know, communicating uh, regularly with our uh, partners in this, that's, you know, we would be doing the same thing for, another type of, you know, emergency um, or, you know, another type of threat. Uh, so it's, it's you know, really uh, what it comes down to is, is just making sure, like I said, um, we're all communicating. Um, we have a common operating picture. We understand, you know, the authorities that would pertain to something like this and, and, and that we have unified, you know, messaging and, and information being shared. Uh, you know, and from our, you know, county perspective, there's 59 municipalities throughout the county, all of which, or most of which have their own police departments, fire departments, you know, uh, governments, making sure that they're all looped into what's going on uh, with, with, you know, with regard to our planning, making sure that if there's um, various guidance that's being published by the CDC or, you know, uh, health authorities that we're able to disseminate those across our target audiences in the communities. Again, all, all in effort to really make sure that we're all on the same page, that if something were to change and, and, um, and uh, you know, that we'd all be able to work together seamlessly that much more quickly. Uh, I'm from North Rolton. I was talking to our North Rolton fire chief the other day who was 
indicating that uh, they have conference calls on the subject uh, once and sometimes up to three times a week going on updating yeah. everybody. Uh, so this is an active uh, concern right now that people are aware of and they're planning for. Uh, is there a plan that's uh, like on the shelf, ready to be pulled off the shelf uh, if needed? Well, so I mean, the, the uh, public health, yeah, they, they plan for this. Um, you know, they plan for these types of incidents uh, extensively. So, so yes. And then also, you know, as I mentioned earlier too, there's some you know universal elements to this that you know our planning as a um, as a emergency management agency, we're charged to do all hazard planning. So. Our emergency operations plan um, should be able to, you know, the, the communications protocol and the, the elements of that should be able to uh, be in place for uh, a pandemic or, you know, an outbreak uh, involving an infectious disease or virus. Um, and so a lot of our planning, whether it's, you know, for mass casualties or mass fatalities, regardless of what the incident is that's causing <laughs> that, uh, uh-huh. our plans are, are, are basically tailored to be scalable and relevant um, for those types of incidents. Well, as we talked about earlier, is that uh, I use the term uh, point of distribution and you use the acronym POD, P-O-D. That's a significant concept because if we start having to get people inoculated uh, en masse, uh, those terms will become very familiar with all of us. Uh, We're going to take a short break. We're talking to uh, Mark Christie from the uh, Cuyahoga County Office of Emergency Management. And and Mark, what is your title? Are you director? Yeah. Director. Okay, good. So, Director of the Office of Emergency Management in Cuyahoga County, we're talking about uh, the coronavirus and uh, the planning that's already there in place if we need it. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back after these words. Don't go away. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. And uh, thank you for spending your Sunday evening with us tonight. Uh, No Super Bowl, no Emmys or Academy Awards, so nothing uh, better to do than sit and listen to The Advocate tonight. And we're talking about the the virus that uh, is being talked about, the coronavirus. And uh, with us tonight, we have the director of the Cuyahoga County Office of Emergency Management uh, who's with us, um, Mark, uh, Mark Christie. Mark, are you there yet? Yes, I'm still oh, here. Very good. Yeah, we're, we're talking about um, you know, planning and having plans on the shelves ready to pull off and how everyone is watching this here in the Cuyahoga County area, as in the other counties in Ohio. I think everybody's watching it, waiting to see what happens to the spread of the virus or whether it's contained. And uh, that's a work in progress, and we have to watch really every day what's happening. Um, what can you tell us about the the projections concerning the virus, like whether they're looking at it continuing to spread, and if so, how rapidly, and how are they coming with the vaccine, if we're to see that in the future? So the prevailing sense in, in the United States, as far as MCC and public health, authorities are concerned, is that still at a relatively low risk. And as you've seen, I think at this at this point, we've had 15 confirmed cases in the United States, uh, amongst uh, about seven states. So um, the federal government, you know, act pretty quickly uh, as this was sort of uh, spinning up in, in China and internationally. And, and um, they made some uh, requirements or adjustments to entry and, and travel. And so 
um, you know, with that, I think uh, there's less concern now amongst uh, public health authorities or officials um, because that, you know, enables us uh, to essentially um, thwart, to an extent, you know, the, the spread of it here. Um, that's not to say that we, you know, are, are th- that we're still, you know, not at risk. Um, so, but with, you know, the uh, what has been put into place regarding travel and then also just how, you know, public health agencies are taking this seriously across the country um, and, and monitoring it very closely and, and you know, activating their networks. Uh, you know, I think there's a, a pretty strong level of confidence that, again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that everybody's forward-leaning and, and putting themselves in, in, in a place where, you know, if, if things were to change here, um, action could be very quickly from the public health, you know, response perspective. Have we had any American deaths yet from uh, the coronavirus? I don't believe we've had any. Um, well, within within the United States, you're saying? Correct. There's been no, I don't believe we've had any deaths within the United States from the coronavirus. And I think you and I were talking during the break about uh, the normal flu season, that uh, there's, there's thousands who normally, I don't want to say normally like it's a casual thing, but uh, right. we, we have, uh, there's a certain lethality just to what we know as the flu season. Well, what's that range roughly that we, we see every year? Well, you, you know, as, as we were saying, I think um, at this point, there's been about, uh, CDC estimates, uh, 14,000 deaths, of, of, you know, from the flu this year. And I think, you know, it's a quarter of a million hospitalizations uh, resulting from that. So, you know, that that again is what public health monitors every year and what concerns them. And um, so they play, you know, very close attention to that. And that's why when we're talking about coronavirus, you see that the, the current statistics, you know, as far as they're concerned within the United States versus the flu statistics, that's, that's why they're very quick in the public health world to say, you know, this is, this is a very real risk. You know, our flu season is a very real risk and take that seriously. Um, obviously be mindful of the coronavirus and, 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 you know, there's no harm in monitoring, uh, you know, uh, as that incident sort of unfolds. But mm-hmm. the flu is, is, is here, and, you know, as it is every year, and that's a very, you know, real risk for a lot of people. Well, what are some of the still best ways that we individually can um, protect ourselves from either the flu or if the coronavirus uh, makes its way to Ohio here to uh, sort of enhance our possibilities of not getting it? Uh, I heard hand washing, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's really it. I mean, um, you know, uh, the same concepts that you've been taught <laughs> growing up to wash your hands and you know avoid close contact with with people that are sick and and uh, you know especially during the flu season, those are um, you know th- those standard practices are relevant for coronavirus too, as far as public health um, authorities uh, you know are aware of so far. Um, so that that is really. You know, the same hygiene practices that you would employ uh, during the flu season are, are really what you should be concerned with right now um, mm-hmm. you know, during this era of coronavirus. We had a, a meeting uh, the other day, and one of the members is supposed to be showing up at the meeting. It was a search meeting, by the way. Uh, oh, okay. just, just came out of a hospital from having some treatment for the flu and uh, wasn't feeling well. And I thanked him for calling and even thanked him more for not showing up. Stay away from us. And yeah. uh, I suppose that's good advice for people who don't feel if they're coming down uh, with something that they can tell it's bad uh, or it's going to be a severe cold or the flu maybe. 
they're most infectious during those early days, I would assume, and a good day to stay away from people. Yeah, that's that's and that's a great example of something you can do too. If you if you don't feel well, you know, there's no sense in in going to work or going to school and and uh, perhaps you know subjecting other people to to whatever sickness you might have. Um, you know, in the case of the flu right now, that's one of those things. I think people have that internal, you know, a lot of people have that internal battle. They want to go to work or they need to, like they need to go to school. Um, but uh, but yeah, if you if you're not feeling well and you think you might have the flu, then that's not going to make you feel any better. And then, you know, stuff beyond that is that then you're going to uh, expose, potentially expose other uh, people to um, the flu. Well, that, that's what we always uh, hear is that the uh, idea of spreading something like a virus, uh, a flu virus or a, a coronavirus, is that it can spread exponentially if, um, if, if you don't know about it and people are just wandering around infecting people. So that, that's right. a good thing. You know, we mentioned CERT, the Community Emergency Response Teams. Can you tell us a little about that? If our listeners are either members of CERT somewhere or would like to get involved, what, what is a CERT? Absolutely. CERT, CERT teams are great. You know, they, uh, they are basically a volunteer group that um, are community-based, and they act as a force multiplier to their you know, local first responders, so their police and fire departments. Um, they are... You know, depending on um, where the CERT is and, and how they're structured, but they're, they're typically able to um, help do a variety of things, um, like search and rescue, uh, direct traffic, you know, during events, um, assist during, you know, pod activations, uh, really whatever, uh, you know, whatever public safety need there is within their community, they can usually get plugged in and, again, act as that force multiplier for their first responders. Um, so... And yet, you know, you and I had a conversation um, about this a while ago, but in, in a you know public health type emergency, um, you know, one thing that I think we had talked about that would be uh, a possible application of a CERT team, you know, in the, if you take the, the coronavirus um, incident right now, uh, it's it's unfamiliar to a lot of people in the general public, and so naturally it's going to be sort of concerning, uh, apparently, and uh, public information is very very critical. And public education is very, very critical to hopefully quell some of you know the unfounded concerns. And so, certs you know are another asset that a community can kind of rely on to help spread literature, um, or you know, just in general help promote public education and information uh, about you know an incident like this. Um, if the community wants to share information that is being given to them from you know our office or the CDC or or the Board of Health or mm-hmm. Department of Public Health, um, you know teams can help uh, disseminate that and spread that message. I, I remember when we had uh, early fears after 9-11 about the possibility of the weaponization of smallpox, which would have been absolutely devastating, right. that uh, CERT teams were starting to pop up with uh, doctors and nurses being part uh, of that, being able to uh, to work at these uh, pods and uh, actually provide the inoculation services and start getting massive amounts of people inoculated. Uh, also during the uh, H1N1 uh, time, that, how many years ago was that already? That, that was 20, probably 2010-ish. Like 10 years ago? Doesn't seem that long. But, 10 or 11 years ago, yeah. <laughs> and that was a long, long time. But yeah. I remember there was a concept that we learned is that if you not inoculate enough people, the spread will stop, like inoculating the herd something is right that, is that right. something no, I've heard we... that too. yeah that's i mean that is that is i think that is the understanding or you know the common 
um, message in the public health world. But yeah, that's I've heard that too. Yeah, and because I, to me it was uh, so unusual, not unusual, it was news because you think get inoculated so you don't get it and it's just a personal thing that you're protected. But there's that other reason. But, yeah. Uh, the, the other reason is that uh, if you get inoculated, you're not going to get it and if you and about three or four other people in your neighborhood get it, none of you guys will get it. And that just sort right. of puts the spread, it just sort of knocks that down to a very minimum thing. Right. Well, right. we'll we'll have to be talking to you uh, again to find out what happens. Let's let's hope we can talk about nicer things. But um, right. it's, it's good to know that transparency, knowledge, education is the big thing. So for all of our listeners out there, as this coronavirus is developing, yeah, watch the news, read the articles, and uh, be yep. aware of what's going on. Does that, does that make sense, Mark? I think. That, yep, that's that's very well put. That's the. You know, all, all you really can do right now is, is just educate yourself. Like you're saying, read the articles, take the time to sort of understand the risks. And, uh, and again, um, you know, hopefully doing so will help alleviate some of the concern or, or you know, any, yeah. any uh, panic that some might have over this. Well, we were, we were on a plane uh, last week. There was a very sick guy who was taken off the plane by EMTs uh, at the airport. Very scary. We probably wouldn't have worried about it to begin with. But, uh, right. but anyway, Mark Christie, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be talking to you again as the situation develops over the My weeks pleasure. and months ahead. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, uh, and we're going to come back. We're going to be talking to Nancy Snazel, talking about alternatives to opioids and pain control. So this should be an interesting conversation. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about the opioid addictions that people have been having coming off of medical treatment and pain medications and how that's been turning into street drugs such as heroin and fentanyl and uh, how many people have been dying and how we've been combating that here in Ohio and other places. Well, there are some alternatives to that and we're going to talk to someone who's an expert in that area. And uh, she's from the United Kingdom and it's uh, Nikki Snazel. Uh, Nikki, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, thank you Nick, for having me. And, uh, we are um, talking about uh, the idea of alternatives to painkillers. And uh, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you're involved in that subject. Well, Nick, I've, I've been working in pain clinics for 30 years. And my specialism is looking at patients that have chronic pain and working out why are they still hurting and what is it about these people uh, that they have these problems and the thing with opiates uh, painkillers is they're fantastic for acute pain they really do help and for anesthetics but chronic pain is very complex and they really can't help very much and because one of the side effects of painkillers is they make you feel very confident and very calm is that it's tempting to keep taking them and there are a lot of hands-on treatments that can help with pain. One of the most important things is actually listening to the patient and understanding where and why they're hurting 
And in England, probably like America, doctors only have literally 10 minutes and it's not enough time to get inside with someone's head. So in our practice, we have about half an hour, we're spoiled, um, and often an hour to get inside someone's head. And there are different modalities of treatment. In our clinic, we specialize in people who have musculoskeletal pain, which is uh, problems with arthritis, problems with nerve conditions, problems with sports injuries that have never healed. And invariably, those problems are due to nerves that get compressed deep within tissue. And these little nerves get literally trapped in muscles that form contractures, that form tight little bands. And one of the techniques that's wonderful for chronic pain is using a little needle, and we borrowed the needle from the east, they use it for acupuncture. We borrow this little needle. It's the smallest microsurgical tool you can have. And we diagnose by going into a very specific area according to the assessment where the pain is. And if we get a positive grab, a bit like when you're fishing, you know when you, you grab the fish and the fish, you know, and the line is going and it's tied. When the muscle grabs, it's a positive diagnosis. And then you can release, when the, when, when the muscle releases, it takes a lot of that compression away from the nerve. And with that, it releases a lot of pain. Is this associated with or something similar to what they call trigger points? It is. It's very similar. Trigger points um, in the right hands can be great. But if you go beyond that to really understand why someone's hurt and understand the psychology of the brain and how it's programmed, you really need to go back to the spine as well. So trigger point stuff is good and it's part of the picture, but it's also going further and deeper back to the spine and back to the brain. And if someone's trained in these techniques, if you have a doctor or a physical therapist that's really interested in this and you've had a chronic sports injury or something like that, this is really magical for releasing the pain. Uh, can you describe for us what is a trigger point? And I say that from a layman's standpoint. A person who has had trigger points, like in my back and shoulders, and the therapist can always say, oh, there's trigger points. But if I would put my own hand on it, I could not feel or identify a trigger point. What actually is a trigger point? Okay, well, um, what's the problems have you had? Have you ever had sort of um, a whiplash injury or a tennis elbow no, actually I, actually, I moved my shoulder too much uh, through daily pressures by bad posture at my computer. And it, okay. it just sort of caused uh, you know, muscles to uh, act up and spasm on me. And it, it took, well, this is like 10 years ago. And I think, you know, to get away from it, it had to go through massages ultimately where people would get down deep and put a lot of pressure on a trigger point that would finally release. As you're talking about the needle... Uh, where yeah. you can sense a release. That's what was being done with these trigger points, uh, at least in my shoulder and in the back area. So the it sounds like about... The thing with trigger points is there's often an emotional link as well. That, but, but parking that for a moment, say that you have a problem in your shoulder. If you know your anatomy and you know that the nerves go through from the lower part of the brain through the spinal column and out through little nerves and you know which muscles are involved, if you release around where the nerve comes out of the neck and actually decompress around that and then follow the route through to the trigger point, 
and go in with a little needle. What happens is a trigger point is when a muscle shuts down, it's tight. When a muscle's tight, you don't have enough oxygen and you don't have enough circulation. And if there's a little nerve underneath, it starts screaming. It starts like blah, blah, blah. It really hates it. So if you wiggle a little needle in there and you can get in much deeper than your fingers, the muscle initially grabs it and then it releases. And what that, what that does is it enables the little nerve underneath you go, oh, thank goodness for that. You know, like if you're standing on mm -hmm, your foot, mm -hmm. I can breathe. And the reflex reaction from that stops the nerve singing so that it takes the pain away. Because we, we mm -hmm. otherwise, you, you know, you've got to have a surgeon cut through with a knife. But the wonderful secret with needles is you can, you can go in really deeply without needing to cut open the area. And if you know how to follow it back and you know where the problem is, it's quite magical that the brain then sort of says, wow, that's a powerful signal. Goodness, something's changed. We've been using words like needle, cut, uh, pain. Uh, how painful is the process? If you're in the right hands, it can be very, 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 very slightly painful. And then usually, with, if you're with an experienced doctor or physical therapist, they will be talking to you all the time, and it's less painful than your pain. It's actually a tremendously emotional reaction because you go, oh my God, that's my pain. That's my pain, you've got it, that's my, I've been telling doctors for years and that is my pain. And a patient, you know, for 30 years of treating thousands of patients, they actually get excited and they go, that's, that's it. And then you hook it and then there's a bit like fish on the end of the rod, it's like, Grr! and it intensifies for a second, like seconds. And then there's that gorgeous feeling of, oh my goodness, something's changed. It's and like when you really know something's happened and right, you get right. that, that significant change there and then in seconds. When we're talking about uh, chronic pain, we're talking about relieving that pain with that process. How long does it stay uh, pain-free before it starts coming back or uh, anatomically? It may never come back, and it may be what, it, what, what you're doing that may be causing problems. If you really get in the right place, and it was due to say you had a car accident years ago, or you had, a, I don't know, some sort of trauma when you're a soldier and emotionally it was locked down and there was something that happened. If you actually release around that area and the brain accepts that as gone, you can literally cure it. It can be done. You know, it's not something that you go back every week. Because massage is different. Massage is lovely, but it's a different thing. It's something that you have quite often to sort of soothe the superficial things. Mm -hmm. But these sort of techniques, if you're with someone that knows what they're doing, that... That should be sorted and done. You know, uh, when we talk about you know needles and acupuncture, how is this different than acupuncture? Is it or is it the same? No, it's very different. I studied um, both kinds of needling. Acupuncture is fascinating. It's it's Eastern medicine. And it's all about hitting certain points in the body that triggers all kinds of neurological symptoms, all kinds of brain juices because of where you are in the body and they also use herbs it's a different type of medicine dry needling is really a big cheat because you don't have to learn six years of chinese medicine you have to be a doctor or a physical therapist that has learned anatomy you can't kind of do it in a weekend as a hobby but right. once you know your anatomy then it's simply working out where do the nerves travel and then you cut through like a surgeon would so there are two different te techniques the only Thing they share is a tiny needle rather than a knife but that's where they're different and having 
worked in Chinese, Korean, Canadian, American, all sorts of different countries. There's that argument that goes round and round. You know, they, they, the only thing that, that, that they share is the needle. And it's all like, well, who had the idea first? Um, both techniques are brilliant. Both are different. But you use them for different reasons. And with pain, it's dry needling. If you have a... You have to cut into a muscle that's dry needling. Well, we're we're going to take a break now. We're talking to Nikki uh, Snazel. Snazel, I'm sorry. Nikki Snazel. She's uh, we're talking about alternative methods of handling chronic pain and, and getting away from opioids if possible. We'll take a short break. We'll be back again with Nikki Snazel talking about um, dry needling and some of the books she's written. So don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Cleveland Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. Now, tonight we're talking about chronic pain. We're talking about the alternative to opioids and, and how you can deal with that. And uh, we're talking to Nikki uh, Snazel from the United Kingdom, from England, uh, about uh, techniques that are more homeopathic, uh, I think, than what we would normally be aware of. Is that Nikki, thank you, first off, for being here tonight. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Nick. It's wonderful to be talking to you and sharing ideas across the huge pond. Oh, the huge pond, yeah. Six hours plus of flying time overnight usually for us. But in any event, <laughs> um, other than that, and it's always great to be there, the the concept of using very small needles, uh, the, the term you mentioned briefly was dry needling. What, what is dry needling and where does the word dry come from? Opposed to what? What needling? I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, that, that reminds me when I was 30 years ago when I was newly qualified and I came from background of having a biology degree and then a physiotherapy degree and I was in a gym and this guy who was actually from the RAS came out with a little tiny needle and he'd put it in the back of a patient's hand and, and I thought, what are you doing? You know, this is, this is voodoo. Surely he's... What are, you, what are you doing? There's no drugs in it. Were you messing about? And I can still embarrassingly, even to this day, remember how I was so kind of, that is just ridiculous. And then I looked at the science behind what happens when we used to, in, in my day, going back all those years, we had to inject corticosteroids and local anesthetic and all sorts of things into painful trigger points and into joints. We were told, you put a drug in it, hence wet needle. And ah. then they looked at the science behind what happened in the body when you needled, and a big part of the reaction was the needle, the dry bit, the needle going into the body. The right. body went, oh, my God, I've had surgery, I've been attacked. Send all the cavalry. Send the blood in, send the anti-inflammatories in, send in the painkillers in. And, and there was a whole lot of science that the drugs companies were not too keen on sharing because, you know, they, they, you know, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? So in the West, we looked at Chinese medicine and we didn't really understand it because it was about these meridian lines of energy lines. It's very clever stuff, but it wasn't our culture, wasn't our understanding. So we looked at what do we do 
if we have a painful trigger point, as you talked about earlier, Nick, and you put a dry needle in when you're not injecting a drug, because there's that kind of anticlimax. The patient sits in front of you and they're going to go, well, I'm going to have a tablet or a drug, and you go, no, you're going to have a little needle, and they're like, is that it? But the magical thing is when you know where to put the needle in, and by cutting into the muscle, the muscle gets such a shock that not only does it signal to the brain that it's had trauma and it sends all recovery in, it actually releases the pressure on the area and takes the pressure off the nerve and it causes a massive healing response that switches off the mechanism of chronic pain. Because chronic pain isn't helpful, it's stuck. It's literally repeating a signal that really isn't helpful. So this technique in the right hands very recently has become really quite excited, exciting and more acceptable because they understand from a research point of view how it can be used and it doesn't involve, involve drugs because in some cases drugs are highly addictive. Well that, that's the, the big problem area is the, uh, the addiction portion of, of treatments generally but when we're talking about having people stick needles in with no drugs uh, the, the question comes up whether or not this is uh, restricted. Or is this allowed everywhere, or is there, are there some places that don't no. permit dry No, needles? and I believe in, in, in America it's still only in certain states because it's very important, and that's where the problem is, that people are properly trained. There's medical doctors and physiotherapists that have done a lot of training that use the techniques and that it's properly organized and, and the training is there. And there's a danger that people might just, you know, literally have a go, and that and that sort of gives it a bad name. Um, so it is, the, it is getting more recognition and more interest, but it's finding people that are willing to train in the area and that are prepared to really learn how to do it properly. Because it, it sort of sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? A bit like witchcraft when you used to get a pin to see if someone was really a witch, you know, and stick well, it in. Well, it does. Um, yeah. See if they float. <laughs> if they float, they're a witch. If they drown, they're, they're not a witch. That's very, right. Very clever. It was only 1955 in England that we actually stopped that law. <laughs> so it was not long ago. This problem with our, our English law system, which we have here in this country. Uh, but in any event, uh, I think it's overall working well. The, the the question about um, you know Chinese medicine with regard to acupuncture and homeopathic medicine uh, just by its very nature is uh, based upon experiences. For example, Chinese homeopathic medicine has been around for 5,000 years with a lot of experiences. Uh, with regard to dry needling and other types of homeopathic remedies, uh, that's they're generally not recognized by the scientific elements of, of modern medicine, are they? And, and how do you get around that? Well, Japan, interestingly, is leading the way with integrating alternative techniques with Western medical techniques. And they're the only country that a doctor is allowed to train in both and then decide. So, for example, if you have a patient who's, who's likely to develop cancer because it's in the family, they'll use a lot of alternative techniques to do whatever they can to keep the patient optimally healthy. So they use herbs, they use exercise, they use acupuncture, but the moment that they get ill and the moment that they have something very serious, then they will bring in the Western techniques of surgery and chemotherapy and other things. But they, they blend it very beautifully and there's a lot of research now that's bubbling up to say if they use together in the right hands, 
that is the safest way forward because it doesn't work if you've got two schools of thought if you've got people that are doing one type of treatment uh, that don't speak to people that are doing the other type but together they really work really well because the thing in in england probably like america is we we're in the illness industry we treat people when they're ill and the wellness industry is saying well why don't we keep people as well as we possibly can why don't we use treatments to push them towards optimum health and then when they tip over into illness we then look at things like surgery and drugs and all those kind of things that we have to turn to at that time but alternative medicine i i believe sits in that arena when people are not sick but they could be but if they if they're optimally healthy then they can avoid it because now science is looking at what we call epigenetics it's just starting to get a lot more a bigger audience and epigenetics is uh, we're born with certain genes you and i are so we're predisposed to certain types of heart problems and cancer problems because of our family but if we live a healthier life if we're not stressed and we're eating the right things or exercising we can put that disease back to maybe we'll get it when we're 70 and 80 rather than 20 because of what we're doing and that new science is going to really bring a whole lot of interest in alternative things because they'll be able to look at what can we do until we get to that critical point so i believe they sit really in two areas it's alternative in when someone is still healthy and western medicine in oh my goodness they've crashed into that point where they now need help does that make sense? No, no, they it does. Really yeah. each other. Well, well, no. I see uh, over the last five, ten years, I've seen situations where uh, you know large institutions that are traditional, scientifically driven medication or medicine uh, have been looking at the homeopathic uh, remedies and actually incorporating that as offerings to complement uh, the the more modern, traditional medical type treatments. And uh, I think I, I, a friend of mine was an anesthesiologist, and he told me that beside uh, handling pain management with uh, wet needles and medications and so on, uh, he also did acupuncture. The philosophy was, uh, if it works, why not? Because it, as long as it's not interfering with the other options as well, and whatever you can do to make the, the client or the patient comfortable seemed to work. But anyway, I, some more of that. You're spot on there because if you have some checks, say I was looking after a client and I was, um, you know, we were doing a lot of uh, work with meditation and dry needling and exercise and manipulation and looking at what they eat and they go back to their, their doctor and their blood pressure is better and their blood results are better and their heart rate is better and all their results are much, much better, then that's excellent because they're looked after from both sides. And, and that, we're going to have to call it because we're out of time already, Nikki. Oh, okay. Uh, we've been talking to Nikki uh, Snaisel, and uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Nikki. Thank you, Nick, for having me. My, my pleasure. And thank you for listening. We'll, we'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning